DJ, thank you. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, continuing our sermon series, Travels with Elijah. And today's theme is God Comforts at Horeb. And I found Dale Ralph Davis's book, The Wisdom and the Folly, really helpful in shedding light on this passage. And it opened my eyes when he said that in his view, 1 Kings 19 was one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament, and one that is most consistently misinterpreted. So let me try and shed some light on this and do this chapter justice. I know we just saw the video clip, but to put this passage into context, last week we saw that God worked his infinite power through Elijah, where the 450 so-called prophets of Baal contested with Elijah to see the authenticity of the true God. Elijah put them to the test to see if Baal could incinerate the sacrifice bull. They prayed their dance. Remember, they shouted and even slashed themselves with swords and spears, and nothing happened. Then Elijah poured water over the wood, a lot of water, and he prayed. And then fire fell down from the Lord. He burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And when the people saw this, they cried out, The Lord, he is God! And then Elijah commanded the prophets to slaughter, uh, the people to slaughter the 450 prophets of Baal. And after this happened, Elijah told King Ahab that rain would be returning after such a long drought. I think these two events, they highlighted the sovereignty of God acting through his prophet Elijah in such a powerfully demonstrative way. And Elijah truly felt that power through him. But in our chapter that Gijo has just read, after King Ahab, who witnessed all this, told his wife Jezebel what had really happened, she wasn't for turning from her idolatry. She sent a message to Elijah and said, May the gods deal with me ever so severely if I do not make your life like one of the prophets, one of the Baal prophets whom you killed by this time tomorrow. So Elijah, he went from hero to zero and did a runner to Beersheba in southern Judah and then went on a day's journey into the desert. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed to God, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I know better than my ancestors. So how should we interpret this? Well, many theologians aren't impressed Ronald Wallace depicts failure in the midst of victory. He said, Elijah, he cracked up. We see a man who had been the most spectacular political success suddenly sink into a mood of despondency and gloom. Ring any bells? A.W. Pink said, up to this point, Elijah had been sustained by faith's vision of the living God. But now he's lost sight of the Lord and saw only a furious woman. This merely underscores, he said, the disastrous consequences of walking by sight. Pink stresses that in verse 3, Elijah ran for his life, not for God, nor the good of his people, because Elijah thought only of self. Any sympathy here? The theologian F. Junger goes uh, further exclaiming, what a contrast. Elijah, the hero on Carmel, 
victorious over Baalism. Now, Elijah, the coward of unbelief at Horeb, self-occupied, utterly discouraged, wishing to die, praying against rather than for the people of God. This is what Junger says, the right observation. And many other writers slam Elijah, suggesting he's arrogant, having an inflated self-image, a whimpering defeatist, submerged in self-pity, a manic depressive and weak, a man that when God needed him most, the divinely trained prophet was to prove a notable failure. Poor Elijah, is that how we should see him today? Well, Dale Ralph Davis gives, I think, an incredibly helpful insight here. He suggests that Elijah wanted to die because he was heartbroken. Even after all the miraculous signs of God, King Ahab, in all his weakness, allows Jezebel to wear the trousers, and Elijah realized that nothing had changed. Neither the people nor Ahab and Jezebel wanted to turn to the living God. And Elijah had just simply had enough. He didn't want to die at Jezebel's hand, as that would be seen as her victory. He was 100 miles south of where Jezebel was, so if he died, no one could give her the credit. So he begged God to take his life. But God, fortunately, had other plans for Elijah. Far from being angry with him, we see in verse 5 that an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. There was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, drank, lay down again. And then again in verse 7, the angel appeared to him saying, Get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. The angel himself suggesting the impending journey to Elijah, which in time brings him to Horeb. God was showing great compassion and comfort to his faithful servant. And strengthened by the food and the drink, Elijah traveled the 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb being the same as Mount Sinai, where God spoke to Moses, and now where God spoke to Elijah. And when the Lord asked Elijah on Mount Horeb, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think Dale Ralph Davis suggests that this can be construed not as a rebuke, but an invitation to Elijah to think where God has led him and why God has led him there. And God enabled Elijah to get what was, what was troubling him off his chest. Elijah's reply to God's question was, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. God, in all his compassion, enables Elijah to get his prime concern off his chest. Elijah's not there out of self-pity, but has a deep concern for the apostasy of the Israelites. After all that God had done for them and shown his people through Elijah, Elijah is upset for God's sake and for God's cause. And enabling Elijah to pour out his heart before God shows God's tender kindness and comfort to Elijah. And as a further comfort to Elijah, God said in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord is about to pass by. God sympathized with Elijah. He wanted to encourage Elijah and build him up in his presence. God asked Elijah again in verse 13, what are you doing here? And Elijah gave the same response, the same reply. It sounds like Elijah is charging Israel over her unfaithfulness rather than crying over a failed ministry. And verses 15 to 18 are God's endorsement of this. Elijah will be in charge of anointing Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. These two kings and one prophet will become God's instrument of judgment upon Israel. And God says in verse 17, Jehu will put to death any who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. In other words, God is saying to Elijah, you're absolutely right. I agree with your assessment and your charges are true. Therefore, I'm going to bring a fair and godly judgment and I want you to return to enable this to happen. God is not chiding the prophet, quite the contrary. It's a full endorsement of Elijah's godly zeal and insight. And before coming to our application, I just want to touch about the presence of God. God wasn't there in either the powerful wind, which tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. God wasn't either in the earthquake, nor the fire which followed, but became present through a gentle whisper, his still, small voice, his word. Some commentators say that God wanted to make a a distinction with Baal. Baal was supposedly associated with storm and nature. And God was in effect saying, I'm not in these things, but I'm in control of them. God was above nature and controlled it, just as Jesus controlled the storm. And I think it's fair to say that there's a revelatory view of God here. The text is teaching that God is present through his word. And this revelation no doubt comforts Elijah too. In his moments of trial and resignation, God's presence is revealed through his word, his gentle whisper. So let me try and apply these to our lives today. Firstly, we must never be surprised at people's intransigence to the gospel message. Jezebel had heard from Ahab the two miracles that had taken place, and yet she refused to listen to them. Even worse, she tried to kill the prophet Elijah, God's conduit through whom these miracles had been performed. I'm sure most of us will have family members or really good friends who just don't want to know the facts of how God has reached out to them reached out to them, particularly through the death of his son and one and only son, Jesus. And however frustrating, I think we should never beat ourselves up about this. Of course, we should never stop trying to convince, nor should we never stop continuing to pray for such people. But the sad fact of the matter is, there'll always be people like Jezebel. The apostle John wrote, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Let Jezebel be our teacher about what the human heart is really like. 
And secondly, I think we can all learn from the passion that Elijah had for God's people. Remember, Elijah said twice that he was very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves here. Do we have that same passion for God's people? I think I mentioned before that just as Christ wept over Jerusalem, I think he would weep over Chesham today. Could any of us here today say that I'm, say that I'm very zealous for the Lord God Almighty? In a hand on heart, I can't. Elijah was despondent over God's interest, his covenant, his altars and prophets, and how Israel had just pushed him away and turned their back on God, who provided for his people so generously. What is it that gets us despondent? Do we ever get depressed for God's sake? Let me quote what the Lord said to Ezekiel, and this really made me sit up and listen. God said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will surely die for his sin. But I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wicked or evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. We all have the responsibility to share the gospel. We all do. And God gives us here a warning for the sins of omission. Thirdly, whilst we're here on planet Earth, there is no better place to look for God than in the word of God. The psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Biblical faith should be content with God's word. And just as Elijah did, we too can draw much comfort and wisdom from the word of God. And fourthly, this passage shows the tenderness and compassion of God to his despondent servants. And don't we all, from time to time, have a sense of despondency? Well, whenever that happens, let's learn from Elijah and cry out in heartfelt prayer to our living God. We may not get a, a cake baked over hot coals in a jar of water, but he will empower us through his Holy Spirit with a sense of peace and patience and perseverance and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. We must never feel alone in, in our times of despondency as God is always there through his Holy Spirit. And finally, we should be alarmed by the judgment that's coming, but also relieved that God is also a compassionate and graceful God. In verse 18, God said to Elijah, yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baals and whose mouths have not kissed him. God has provided through Jesus his forgiveness, his peace, his reconciliation 
to all those who have faith in his son, Jesus. And sisters and brothers, this provides us today with great comfort and encouragement because we are his remnant, we are his people, we are the sheep of his pasture. And in our uncertain and fragile world in which we live today, we have God's promise of something so, so much better. So whatever the Jezebels of this world throw at us, let's always remain faithful to our living God and have our eyes fixed on this glorious future that God promises to us today. Amen.